Okay, so uh, Steve and we're having this conversation, but with the intention a little bit of a, uh, of having fun and seeing where it carries us. Absolutely. Looking forward to some expansive ideas and unanswerable questions. <laughs> and, and, and we started, uh, you know, before the recording because uh, you were asking me about what it is that uh, in my uh, early adulthood I didn't like about uh, what I was doing and having, and I described to you the sense of being hemmed in, uh, being in business, having an advertising agency where there was a mixture of fun and being creative, but also a sense of not connecting with kindred spirits. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Well, I think there's a commonality uh, for uh, people who want to be connected with people that their life experiences often take them into uh, pathways that take them out of interacting with people. So for me, I was always, you know, I was interested in how the mind worked, how people acted together, and the linkage between people and the physiology uh, that was underneath this. However, within the world of academics, as you probably have already experienced, uh, academics have a lot of the features that business does. They, they pull you away from interacting. They, uh, the creativity, which was the reason you, uh, I went into it, the creativity, the act of discovery, and the act of translating ideas into practice, are hard to really accomplish because of the constraints of the environment. I think the, com the common concept is that work environments uh, have constraints, and maybe that's what defines work, as opposed to play, because the work has constraints and doesn't allow the creativity to be expressed uh, in its own way. So for me, at the latter stages of my academic career, I am really enjoying the opportunities <clears throat> to interact with people and to translate my ideas into practice. Mm -hmm. and so what I'm hearing is that, in a way, the constraint uh, is not just a constraint, but also an invitation to dance with it and play with it. Well, <clears throat> what I often say is uh, the way of playing with it is if you're, uh, you always try to navigate. That's the word I would use, navigate and respect the constraints because the constraints or the system that has constraints is also supporting you in different ways. So for an academic, it's providing opportunities to discover. It's also providing a degree of credibility to be creative. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So, so um, there is a tension between, um, in a way, uh, living up to the constraints and, and being creative. I, I think that that's uh, an accurate description, and of course the success of the individual is how they feel about themselves. And so the balance between the constraint and the ability to be creative or to be, have a degree of self-fulfillment is the dialectic. And so when we talk about are you comfortable within the profession that you've elected, you're really asking do you find fulfillment in what you do in life? And academics, on, on a strange metaphor, has both been the most wonderful thing that I've, I, you know, it's defined my life, uh, but it's also enabled me to do things outside the academic uh, constraints. So it was balance. Mm -hmm, it was an understanding mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of those things. And, in fact, the metaphors that we're obviously going to be playing with the rest of our dialogue is the difference between implicit and explicit mm -hmm. actions bodily feelings versus the constraints of our cognitive world. And that's exactly what we're talking about in creating this balance between a creative academic and the demands of the environment that is about uh, basically generating resources, publishing. It, it's no different than other worlds, but you have to have the balance between the bodily needs, the sense of fulfillment of self, these implicit feelings of being a complete person uh, and how that really reacts to the constraints that are placed upon you in your work environment. So I want to slow it down a little bit because as I'm listening to you, uh, it feels very rich and so maybe I'm going to focus on a small part of what mm -hmm. I'm hearing as an entry point. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're talking about that dance between the implicit and the explicit and the yeah. explicit is in lots of ways the specific demands 
that the environment makes on you to produce, mm -hmm. you know, to, to publish, to produce, to do things. Uh, and the implicit, uh, I'm hearing as something that is that felt experience of yeah. what gives you a sense of I'm, I'm, I'm having a good time, I'm okay, I'm happy, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm satisfied with my life. Right. Well, I'd even push it even further that part of the implicit feeling is a sense of fulfillment and feeling safe within one's own body if we really want to get into the full uh, value of what these implicit feelings can give you. It's a sense of occupying your personal space, feeling real. Yeah. So, so in a way, uh, there's really a, a very, it's, it's existential in a non-bullshit, non-philosophical way, but in a very deep, uh, lived way that, uh, that that sense of feeling real. Yes, yes. I, I, I think uh, the, these whole issues of whether we live inside our body or outside our body, whether we, we witness ourselves and respect ourselves, or are we the servants to the explicit world and defining features of everything around us? And it's not that one is right and the other one is wrong, or one is good and one is bad. It's that there is a dance, I think, when we entered the conversation. Uh, there's a true balance between these different features, because we live in an environment that has demands. If we're, uh, uh, if we're a spouse or if we're a parent, or a colleague, we have well-defined, explicit responsibilities. And they may not always be consistent with what our body says it wants. So there's always this kind of dialogue occurring with the understanding that we have to literally satisfy both, both, uh, both portions of who we are. And if we don't satisfy both, we pay a price. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I want to, to maybe not... Uh, um directly go where you are, but do a sideways thing, which I think is in sync, but maybe not. And so what I'm hearing is the sense of, in a way, the uh, distinction between uh, being aware of one's feelings, mm -hmm. you know, and that's, that's the implicit part, and being, an, and being directed in a way by one's feelings, and the one's feelings can be very much like, I hate this, or I want to do that, um, but in a way, uh, not just having a dance with the explicit constraints, but a dance within how we define ourselves is mm -hmm. by, in a way, having this dialogue and this dance with our feeling, feelings or implicit sense of self in saying, I'm, I'm realizing how much I want to do this or how much I don't want to do that, uh, and yet I choose to do this or that, uh, you know, and in the process is the sense of uh, feeling, uh, feeling ourselves be alive and be the person. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, I, I, it, yes. And what, what I'm also saying is that those things that we do that we don't really want to do often have great value within the world that we live in. Mm -hmm. And so there's a degree of not merely respecting our body's needs, but also respecting the context in which we live. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a difficult dialectic to maintain. But so also then maybe what I'm hearing is the notion that uh, the context in which we live uh, is also in some way, uh, you know, has, has wisdom in terms of, in a way, not always, it can be oppressive, it can be against us, but it can also be supportive, and in some way the dance is figuring out when it is. I, I just started to get a different visualization of what you were saying, and that is to think that the explicit world is an organic world as well, has organic features that have, in, it, in itself it has an implicit set of features embedded in the explicit world. It's kind of circular. But we re the world that puts the constraints on us, if we react to it, it has some of the same features we have that we're, that we're sensitive to. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, it has to do, I think, with a different understanding of what is our implicit and our implicit, which is our own personalized view of the world, versus our connectedness with other human beings. Okay. So as a connected human being, if you contract this circuitous uh, discussion, uh, 
our connectedness with others makes others who may appear to be in our explicit world, they have their own implicit features as well. And we can, we can literally be rocking those implicit features. And what I'm really thinking about at this moment was really what's going on in the presidential elections. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, because they're all being driven. Can you, can you, it's actually. Can I, can I hold it for a moment? I want sure. to, to kind of come back to what you were saying, and then I'd love to continue with the election. Yeah. But uh, sure. what I'm hearing is you're talking about essentially, instead of in a way, uh, you know, the, the, the experience of life is. I'm alive, I have this implicit, yeah. I have this subjective, this subjective, you know, consciousness, and the world outside is in a way this machine and this pressure. Yeah. And, yeah. and and this conceiving of the world outside as actually an enormous living organism. Right, right. And, a, yeah, yeah. And so, and so we're interacting with other people, you and I are both these yeah. living inter- organisms, so we're interacting as, but also that the world as a whole uh, can yeah. also be felt as yeah. that, you know, and so we're, we're in that sea of implicits, you know, that are... Exactly. Yeah. What, we're, what we may be interpreting as an explicit constraint on us yeah. is, in a sense, an organic implicity, an implicit yeah. feature of that external world. It's, it's, a, it's because we're connected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so I like very much because when you, you, you when you add the word, you know, you say implicit and you say organic implicity, you know, yeah. organic is life. And yeah. so it's no longer uh, a sense of I'm life against the yeah. machine. Right. Uh, but, yeah. but it's a way navigating and navigating relationships because it's the, all the, uh, you know, the pleasure but also enormous frustrations of human relationships. Yeah, I, I think what we're really kind of uh, serendipitously moved into was the notion that the whole history of the study of uh, mental processes and psychological processes has been so focused on the individual and, yet, and, and the within-person responses, yet they're being framed and interacting uh, due to a connectedness with others. And the others don't have to be human. Mm-hmm. They can be other uh, organic features in the environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so, so in a way, we go to a standard in a way that... Uh, um, uh, the focusing on me, or yeah. you know, the me, a person, yeah. uh, is imagining that a person could exist without an environment, and yeah. and and that in a way, uh, what this is about is uh, the me is maybe a window into that larger thing, or a, a facet of the diamond, or an, an aspect of it, as opposed yeah. to being an entity. Yeah, it, I kind of look at it more like a Rubik's, Rubik's Cube. Mm-hmm. It's part of this multidimensional set of interactions. Uh, the polyvagal theory that, that I've been developing really forces one to see not me, but the, sense the context of the individual within the context, because that's what we respond to. So, so the, the, in a way, the mechanism, the polyvagal uh, yeah. mechanisms is the uh, biological way yeah. in which that interface between the organism as an individual organism and the world at large uh, is, is, is regulated. Absolutely, because as I started to develop the theory, the realization came to me that we're not about self-regulation, we're about co-regulation. Mm-hmm. And so, and mammals are all about co-regulation, and we are mammals. Once we're about co-regulation, we are into other people's life space, we're into other people's implicit reactions, even though they may appear to create explicit constraints on our life. This is, in a sense, how life starts, with the parent and the child, because the child is being regulated by the parent uh, and the child's visceral feelings are being, let's use the term, contained or structured in a way not to be too chaotic or disruptive. Mm-hmm. So, so tantrums are, are ameliorated. So, so, so in a way from that uh, the, the big sense is whenever we talk about self-regulation, mm-hmm. uh, we miss the boat. We miss the boat. And, and the co-regulation or interface or, yeah. you know, things like that mm-hmm. have more to do with the reality of, of, uh, of the processes. Of our, of our biology. 
Mm-hmm. We had, this is who we are. And the, there's an overall um, paradox, and that is the individuals who do better regulating themselves are the ones who have been better or had more opportunities to effectively co-regulate with others. So the system literally has gone through a series of neural exercises to promote resilience, while the old model was if you support too much, the individual will not be able to take care of themselves. And so it's a total paradox and a misunderstanding of the needs of the system. And the system needs to be co-regulated because it provides resilience to self-regulate in the absence of another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so the old model was really essentially that, uh, you know, adversity is good for you, it builds character, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, But the transition by calling it self-regulation was we're teaching you something. But actually what is being taught is the ability to interface. Right, right. And, and, And the... The success of the interface is seen in the bodily response. So if the body then becomes regulated or calmer or feels, uh, promotes a physiological state that enables feelings of safety and trust, that's all good because it creates resilience to be alone. It, mm-hmm. It's it's almost as if it's a paradox. But as a therapist, you can see the, what happens when those experiences early in life are not met. So when people are not co-regulated, their ability to self-regulate is really disastrous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, because self-regulation does not exist by itself. Because we're talking about, you know, how we uh, adapt to -hmm. the environment, whether it's actual environment or perceived environment. So, So in a way, it's about our interaction with threat. Right. So individuals who have... Any, actually, any form of mental health disorder, what is the manifestation? The inability to co-regulate with another. That's one of the major. So trauma, abuse, this results in difficulties in co-regulating. So the, the almost the window to the successful human being is can they co-regulate their physiology in the presence of another? The metaphor I love to use is to feel safe in the arms of another appropriate mammal because some people gravitate to their pets more than to their, uh, let's say, spouses. Right, right, right. So, 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 so essentially uh, is co-regulate in the presence of another mammal. Yeah. yeah. Because mammals, at least, all mammals at some point in their life need to co-regulate. But social mammals need to co-regulate throughout their whole life. So we start off with our parents, then we start getting peers, then we get mates, and then we have to regulate our children. It's this progression. And then as we get older, someone has to again regulate us because we don't have the resources to do it on our own. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But you notice that the, the, the beauty of this is we're talking about it in these terms, like the task of parenting becomes yeah. a little different. It's not, you know, I'm going to teach the right. kids something, but it's my being with my kids in a certain way mm-hmm. is going to implicitly help them be that way. I use, I agree, and I use the word neural exercises, which is kind of a peculiar term to use because we need to exercise these neural feedback circuits because if we don't, then we have problems as we get older, or we have problems in our life. So it's not learning in the old traditional way that we learned uh, through behaviorism or reinforcement model. It's that this is what our nervous system craves. It craves these interactions. It craves that to regulate itself into a physiological state that is more optimal for health, growth, and restoration, and for certain expansive thought processes, whether we call it creativity or spirituality, those features are not going to emerge if we're in a state of constant threat, if we're physiologically unable to co-regulate. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so uh, again, that's the part of um, uh, not thinking about, not focusing on the individual as a whole, 
but uh, thinking time and again that we exist as part of a context, like every all of life exists that way. And that, uh, you know, what we're talking about is finding the conditions under which uh, certain mm-hmm. capacities can expand and function optimally. Absolutely, yes. And so having, in a way, talked about this, maybe coming back, you wanted to, to talk a bit about the current election. <laughs> well, the only reason I brought that up was this whole notion of watching of the Trump rallies and listening to the convention, the Republican ones, and feeling uh, the hostility and the anger in people. And it's all real. It's all what they're expressing. Mm-hmm. It's the real bodily state. And realizing that that organic set of features coming out at me was having an effect on me. So that I was not impervious to that. That was something in my world that was triggering in me the feelings that these people were having in themselves. Mm. And so they were, and you can see the whole concept and the theme of the election uh, is really separation. It's it's a feeling that individuals aren't being witnessed, aren't being listened to, and others are. So it's a very interesting world because I think what has happened uh, and what is really the backstory to the entire uh uh, let's see, what is the right word? Uh, where the Republicans have become the party of the uh, blue-collar worker is that that segment of our society feels that no one's listened to them. And in part, they're right, because people aren't asking for their story. They're being told what they should do and what they need to do, and people aren't really asking them. I'm actually going to give you a short, a little uh, example. I had a person uh, who was a mover, moving some of our furniture, and he came into, uh, uh, we're moving because my wife took a job in Indiana, and we have a house in North Carolina. And he came in, and he looked at me, and he said, you look like an academic. And in general, I think that's a compliment. He says, I don't like academics. <laughs> They have a liberal uh, agenda. I don't want my kid to go to college. It kept going on and on about he was against the minimum wage, even though certainly he was not a wealthy man, uh, and and all these features. And he said, I, I'm, in, I'm a Ted Cruz fan. And I was listening. And I said, um, you know, there are people who make a million dollars, like neurosurgeons, a million dollars a year. So that's good. They save lives. No way did he see that there was a team of people. So disparity in income wasn't meaningful. And I realized that this was a person who needed to be listened to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I just let him tell me. And, and his points, even though I wouldn't agree with them, these, these points needed to be said by him. He had to say them. And he had to say them to me. And I listened. And two days later, when he was living the furniture, and my wife was uh, there to greet him, he said, what a wonderful conversation he had with me. Now, the point was, I didn't get into an argument. I listened with and respected his perspective. I didn't agree with it. I didn't argue with it. But I listened. And too often people are not witnessed. I started to realize the power of what it is to be a witness. And as a therapist, you obviously understand that part. And that's part of the connections. And when we start understanding that witnessing doesn't mean reacting to the person, it means respecting the person's feelings and statements. It's compassion. A good witness has compassion. A bad witness is one that gets empathic, feels the pain, feels the injury, the hurt of the client or of the person, and then the client or the person who has those feelings is functionally hurting the listener. Yeah. And that makes the victim victimized again. And so, and so we're talking again about that, uh, you know, that, that co-regulation that you <clears throat> think of it as almost uh, some kind of a physical thing that the door that opens up enough yeah. to, to let in, but not, not, you know, not drown you. Right, right. I think embedded it's with this notion of, of respect for the other and respect for oneself. So the, the individual, the mover, 
if he were a more more thoughtful person, a more, let's say, self-compassionate person, he would have said, I need to express these feelings. I need to, you, he may have said to me, you don't necessarily have to agree with me, but these are my feelings. And I don't want to offend you, but I want you to understand my perspective, or at least hear it. But he, he was emotive, and I had to take the, the role of, of being the listener and being accepting. Because if I had reacted, it would just have been a self-fulfilling prophecy for him. Mm-hmm. He would have seen me as an academic who was aloof, evaluative, and, and in a sense dismissive of the Dismissive, yes. And, and that's this whole issue. And that's in a sense what the Republican, uh, or let's say Trump is really saying. He's saying people are dismissive of your needs. Whether he calls it a rigged election or a rigged this or a rigged newspaper, he's saying, they're not listening to you. And the people literally haven't been listened to. Yeah. And, you know, I, I had my opportunity to be, let's use the term, a listener when I, I was a department chairman at one point. And I realized that decisions are made by one person when you're chairman, you make decisions. So you can't do things by consensus, but you can listen to all the individuals. And that's all they want to be. They want to be heard. And when you listen to them, you respect what they're saying, but you still don't have to make a decision. But this ability to respect other people's perspective is something missing, or let's say not well developed in our society. But so, so I want to, to, to go in the same sense, but in a way then raise a question. Um, you know, the, beauty of the examples, that the, the example that you mentioned, is that you were one-on-one. Mm-hmm. And as you point out, you know, the mover did not have that self-compassion to, 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 to point out, you know, I want to be heard, I want to be listened to, I'm tired of being dismissed, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. But uh, he was one-on-one, and so there was no implicit threat. Yeah. And I think what happens in the uh, political dialogue that we have within the country is we have blocks and then within the blocks we perceive a sense of threat from each other from each block mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and so from that block you know for the perceiving the sense of threat in a way we lose our ability to have respect because we don't have a sense of safety uh, and so there's the idea these people are, and I think it's interchangeable from one side or the other, you know, probably there is a shared feeling of these people are pure evil or they're so completely stupid, but the net result is they're dragging all of us, including me, into a catastrophe. Right. I, I would like to slightly reframe it, okay. what you said, and that is everything they're doing uh, is not, so is to make a separation between people so you don't identify with them. So it's me, it basically, it's like the, a ban on Muslims or a ban on this or all Mexicans. It's a categorical statement of saying one group is different. And if they're different, then they're not us. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be concerned about them. It's very tribal. And the, the it, it violates this whole understanding of connectedness. As we, if we appreciate greater connectivity amongst us, then we couldn't hurt each other. And so, what is war about? War is really about uh, creating enough uh, uh, emotional motivation, I guess one would call it, to see the enemy not as being us, not being human. It's it's a dehumanization of one group, and that is very dangerous. And so a notion of whether you have a state or a country uh, or a community uh, that is separate from another so you can compete for survival creates uh, a different type of competition that's far from co-regulatory. So yeah. it goes to your, your issue of threat and danger, which is the only way that our body, if our body gets triggered by threat and danger, then we don't have... We, we limit the capacity to co-regulate with another. We limit the capacity to connect. So I'm going to bring another construct in here, and this is something that we've learned um, when we took introductory psychology 
people talked about intervening variables. So you had stimulus, you had a response, but you had something in between. Mm-hmm. An in-between thing, uh, in terms of everything we're talking about, is our own physiological state. And we can use labels like implicit bodily feelings. But when we're in different physiological states, it distorts or changes our perspective of the world. And we respond differently. So the stimulus, which is the same physical stimulus, takes on different attributes based upon our physiological state. But if our bodies feel safe, we have tremendous flexibility with those stimuli. Right. So let's let's go. Uh, so in a way, just uh, like a filter uh, yeah. that bends the feeling in a certain way, that bends the, the perception of the situation. It, 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 we can say actually bend is beautiful because it's. It's like a prism. It's a prism. Mm-hmm. It's bending the light. It's bending the features. Mm-hmm. It's distorting them, or it's uh, it's making them appear different. And based upon how people feel about themselves, or let's use the in my world, their physiological state, the same situation will either be irrelevant, or they'll want to get into a, a massive argument or feud. The same stimulus, the same interaction. Uh, the examples I love to use, and, and I'm sure everyone has a person like this in their lives, someone who is so likable, it doesn't matter what he says or she says. People just smile, and this person says the most outrageous things. And you know that if you ever said that, you wouldn't be alive today. Right, right. And it's because they have a smile, they have an intonation in their voice. They're sending cues to the other person's nervous system that they're no threat. Right. It's really quite powerful examples because they can say really outrageous things. But so, so that's a perfect example that, in a way, the way we communicate with each other yeah. uh, is so much more than the words we say and yeah. how they can be overshadowed by the rest of the communication. Right, because our evolutionary history uh, actually uh, started long before we had language. Right. It, so mammals... One of the unique things about mammals is they have vocalizations uh, that they that and a nervous system tuned to detect vocalizations that convey signals of safety, danger, or life threat. That's how they survive. So, so I want to you want we jump on this to come back to the the discussion of politics and of um, in a way yeah. what happens and and, and the groups blocks that sounds yeah. like so uh, in a way you know there's a tribalism and we all. You know, it's very hard to, to, to get rid of this because, in a way, we evolved from mm-hmm. the sense of being connected to the, uh, uh, you know, the connection that exists in being a tribe. So yeah. we probably, uh, even when we feel we evolve out of it, are somewhat kidding ourselves. It probably is a very strong thing. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, the, 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 the sense of polarization is about... You know, I'm in this tribe, and there's a comfort in it, and the other tribe is bad and dangerous, and so it gives a nice sense of identity. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, similar to say, you know, uh, the creed in a religion is about if you buy into this point, then you're one of us, and so mm-hmm. we're all together in it. And there's a very nice feeling, or, you know, being part of the supporters of the same sports team, or, you know, just that it, it feels inherently nice in a way for our, you know, perceptual mechanisms to, to have a sense of being part of a tribe. Then, conversely, uh, you know, that triggers that sense of the other tribe is threatening. And so the vibe that comes out from there is going to be the vibe of, you know, we're against them, let's kill them, they're bad, they're, you know, and, and so to use your example of the person, you know, who, who could say some words, but the, uh, the total demeanor communicated yeah. something else, even if, say, you have nice political language, you mm-hmm. know, part of what we're experiencing, you know, is in a way the antagonism that the other tribe is throwing, or that we feel toward the other tribe, you know, mm-hmm. as part of the, the phenomenon, of being, you know, wanting to be part of a tribe and therefore wanting to be against another tribe. So, you know, in other words, what I'm trying to say is that what's happening, that kind of polarization and that kind of intensity uh, is is to think of it as, as some kind of a normal mechanism that we yeah. simply experience in a certain way, but is, is basic. 
Uh, I think you're, you're on to something that is quite real and true. The issue is, as the tribes get large, they can become uh, create dangerous conflict. And and actually, you know, I I used to think that you know you're uh, had a better sense of the relationship between individual and land, but then whenever I go to Europe, I realize that Europe has been uh, basically at war forever. You know, it's uh, it's basically transgenerational on top of transgenerational trauma. And you can see the examples, whether there was the Protestants and the Catholics. I mean, you can actually see that uh, how something as simple as a religious selection that was imposed on people, not that they selected it on themselves, creates an in-group and an out-group. Mm-hmm. And, and you see that, uh, or language. So there are countries in Europe where they have split languages, or you know, more than one language. And even our dialogue earlier about different types of languages within the countries, where people with one language say, I'm, uh, I don't want to be in the same country if people speak a different dialect or a different language. There are, there are different people. So it's part of our nature to try to, uh, come together on some core. But I think one of the issues has been the populations have gotten so large that the dependence uh, at one point in time, I believe there would have been a dependence to make sure you had a reasonable number of people to do the task of survival. And now it's just high populations and encroaching on resources, whether the resources are land or other things. So wanna just uh, what I'm getting from that is, in a way, the sense that we have this built-in mechanism to be tribal, and therefore to be antagonistic. But uh, there is a need for a countervailing force, you know, yeah. to keep it I, in check. Actually, let me just interrupt you. Uh, so you have a dialectic between two different needs, a need yeah. to connect and need to be protective of your tribe. The issue is that each one of those uh, appear to be diametrically opposed forces are actually dependent upon a different physiological state. Okay. That there's certain so if we are in a sense a physiological state that is more at least this term co-regulated physiologically calmer, we're more accepting. But if our physiology shifts to a more mobilized state, we become defensive. So so let me amplify a little bit that in a way there's a, a bidirectionality to this mm-hmm. because if we're in a calmer state, then we're going to have less of that experience of the antagonism, but conversely, the antagonism is going to accentuate the tendency to perceive conflict and to heighten the dysregulation. Yes. And yes. and so uh, I think what you're talking about is the idea that if we start to think about, in a way, being part of a larger organism, mm-hmm. that this organism has to learn to regulate itself or that we need to uh, increase our ability to co-regulate mm-hmm. so that we don't get caught in these uh, spirals of accelerating uh, this, this, this I, I, I think we have to be taught to be much more aware of what our body is doing in response to different things. I do a little simple exercise in my workshops. I have people uh, take 10 uh, relatively rapid inhalations and 10 slow exhalations and they work with partners, and then they take 10, 10 long inhalations and more rapid exhalations. So I shift the inspiration-expiration ratio, and I have them observe each other. Uh, so you have an observer while one person's breathing, and then you roll reverse. And what happens is that when people take these longer inhalations and shorter exhalations, they see the person observing them as being extraordinarily critical. They say, they say, what did I do wrong? Why are you looking at me that way? Because they shifted their physiological state by breathing. But when they shift to a longer, slower exhalation, they say, oh, what an attractive person. I'd like to know that person a little bit. It's a very interesting example of something as simple as our breathing pattern 
can change our perspective of the person across the room from us, actually within close proximity. And it's actually an amazing phenomenon to watch. And people just say, wow, how did this happen? Yeah, no, it's, it's a beautiful example. I want to just repeat it a little bit just to make sure that you just do. So in a way, the, 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 the exercise as the, you know, the difference between taking slower exhalation versus uh, faster exhalations mm-hmm. helps you shift from, uh, you know, when you're slower, you're in a calmer place and you're yeah. going to tend to see the other person as being wonderful. Yeah. Uh, and or feeling connected or feeling seen or feeling, you know, a sense of connection. But the faster exhalation and you experience the other person as being critical and judgmental. Yeah. So so that beautiful example that what happens, a physical inner state mm-hmm. and its impact on perception of the situation. It, it's, and it's explainable because during exhalation, the vagal impact on the heart becomes greater. It calms you down. So a slow exhalation is common because of the neural inhibition of, of the vagus on the heart. It calms you down. So you can actually see this functioning. But as therapists, uh, if they see an anxious person, the person's anxiety is manifested in how they breathe. You can see these fast, um, basically very short exhalations. Very, very short. And so they're creating a physiological state that supports the anxiety. And when you see someone getting angry, they're doing the same thing. They're shifting their breathing pattern to create a physiological state that supports the anger and the hostility. So, so I'm, I'm uh, at a personal level, but also at a societal level, the implication is in a way to take emotions less seriously, because we tend to take, you know, in a way, emotions are the ways we perceive the world. Mm-hmm. So if I feel angry or if I feel judged, or I, you know, in that sense, I'm going to act on it. Right. And what you're saying is that experience of the difference in breathing yes. gives you a sense of how the emotion can be affected by how you process it, by how the whole organism is. Yeah, and so therefore, uh, in a way, it's not just an abstract thing of don't necessarily follow your emotion, mm-hmm. but a sense of how you can have a different experience of your emotion, so that you don't have to oppose intellect and emotion, yeah. but you can have a larger context to process the emotion. See, I, I play with those ideas, and I talk about it as uh, shifting our personal narrative. Mm-hmm. So when we have a physiological state that mobilizes us and gets us reactive, we, of course, develop a personal narrative that supports that. Mm-hmm. It says you're a bad person, not me, you are a bad person, this anger and hostility directed at you is well justified. Yeah, yeah. And, and if I shifted my physiology, I wouldn't be reacting to you or anyone else that way. Yeah, but so, the, you know, the, the, the part that's very interesting in that sense, when you say the shifting, there's an active part. Uh, <clears throat> instead of, in a way, I'm a passive receptor of yeah. experience, and experience then dictates it. You know, I have a role in how I perceive my experience, or how, and so... I, I not only have a role, I can intercede and shift my physiological state through, through a very primitive but voluntary manipulation, changing how I breathe. Mm-hmm. And, and so I use uh, two types of con- two, two types of processes. I talk about a, a passive pathway and an active pathway. The passive pathway are the cues you may be throwing to me or I may be throwing to you, the intonation of voice, the gesture, and my body may react. But the active pathway would be something like breathing, which would come from an awareness of what my body is doing. I also uh, frequently say that we tend to be totally unaware of the cues that shift our physiological state. But we are usually always aware of our physiological state shift. And if we're aware of it, we can intercede. We can do something. We can take our body out of that place, or we can do a breathing exercise. We can respect what our body's doing and say, I don't need to create that narrative to justify that physiological state. I can see what what has happened. I reacted. 
and now I need to change my state so I can truly evaluate the situation. Okay, so again, that's very rich, so I want to just take a little part. <laughs> just, <laughs> uh, and so, uh, you know, that in a way, there's the entry point, and the entry point is uh, the awareness of the physiological experience. Yeah. And from that awareness of the physiological experience, there is the possibility of experimenting with it, of shifting it, and then in shifting it to experience oneself, uh, in the situation, both oneself and the situation in a different way. Yes. And okay. and so the, from there, in a way, uh, you know, having described that in a very so in in lots of ways, what you describe is is very in a way simple uh, steps how to you know that we can follow at a very down to earth level of saying, look, this is what you pay attention to, this is how you shift it, including the breathing and so on. But at the same time, it's a very deep concept of, in a way, to answer the question of who am I. Uh, it's that sense of I am at the interaction yeah. of these various things. Right. So it's actually it's a great question because, of course, you're the reactive person and, of course, you're the calm person. But who's the real you? Right. <laughs> and and so in our sense, we have um, in an Again, I use the word implicit again, kind of an implicit sense of hierarchy, that if we're not reactive to the, to the intrusions, then the real person can express it, him or herself. Yeah, but the, when you put it that way, uh, you know, who are you, you know, the calm person or the angry person or the reactive person, that in a way, uh, you know, these concepts are uh, static, you know, calm or this or that. <laughs> And, and the model that you're describing is actually experiencing oneself as a process. And dynamically adjusting yeah. and experiencing the self as it changes through. As you gain the awareness of yourself changing, that becomes, in a way, self-compassion. You, you start respecting and witnessing what you're doing. Right, right. Who you so, are, basically who you are. But the, I want to, again, highlight this because self-compassion, uh, again, it's one of these words that's often used. And so it seems like, quote, a good quality or a sense, an attitude. But as you're describing it, uh, you really are describing a process that is about following reality moment by moment and playing and experimenting as opposed to simply uh, a sense of I want to be good and open and oh. accepting, you know. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's a it's a it's a different it's a different definition, and and I you know and actually one that is in a way as you follow it more humanly attainable. Yeah, it, it's again linked to this respect of what the body actually is doing. Yeah. And so it's not a cognitive construct superimposed on our bodily experiences. It's allowing the body to respond and to truly experience the body responses and to have a degree of awareness, and I'm going to use this term, respect for what the body's doing. Right, right. And so so it's not that, you know, the, the value is respect and you have to force yourself to be respectful, uh, but I'm going to give you a pathway. If yeah. you follow the body experience, yeah. if you are, uh, you know, start to play with yeah. it and experiment with it and tinker with it in a certain way, then in a way, in all likelihood, you will start to have that perspective where you will have respect for, you know, who you are as a body. And right, because what you were just talking about is really, um, it was very good for me to hear because it reminded me that people have totally different perspectives about what is, quote, good or not in terms of their own bodily reactions. Mm -hmm. And I'm not labeling the reactivity or the calmness as good or bad. I'm saying you become aware of it, and as you respect the body going through these stages, then you can make a decision about where you want to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we're really, we, we totally shifted from, uh, oh. you know, in a way, a notion of what is good, what is bad, mm-hmm. um, you know, to uh, being in process. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, and, and, and actually a sense of life and, uh, you know, as being in that moment-by-moment moment process and that dance. Yes. And so being in that dance with oneself and in a way seeing the complexities moment-by-moment, 
uh, is obviously going to make it easier to see other people as, you know, more complex than simply cardboard cutouts. Right, because part of our own body and our own body reactions is to connect, to co-regulate with others. And this dynamic interaction really means that we are helping the other regulate as we regulate with them, and that becomes a shared responsibility. So we're, we shift it from the, this, the individual wanting something to the individual being dynamically involved in the processing of another individual. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And maybe I want to, um, in a way, highlight a little bit the meditation, because when I go there, uh, it gives me both a sense of hope, but at the same time a sense of fear. Uh, the hope is obviously, you know, that the possibility of um, of coming to a better connection, a better place of co-regulation. It's also what I experience as a therapist with clients. It's what I experience in, with kindred spirits. But where it brings the place of fear is in a way then going to say, okay, so then, uh, you know, say if you're in an extreme situation, there's a mob of angry people and you're all alone, are you going to be able to, you know, do that? And, and I think that what helps is to say there's probably a built-in impossibility mm-hmm. to, you know, that in a way that kind of regulation functions under certain conditions when it's possible. But in a way you cannot do more than what you're capable of doing. Well, your body is going to evaluate the degree of risk. It's not going to be an explicit uh, cognitive decision. Mm -hmm. If there's an angry mob of people coming at you, hopefully your body will mobilize to get out of there. Right, right. But sometimes people will be locked in fear. It's not a decision that they're making with a, a conscious awareness, but their body may see it. This may be related to earlier traumas or histories, and they may freeze or shut down or pass out uh, under those demands. But their body is making those decisions, and in a way, the way of uh, supporting the individual is to respect the body's decision and not to criticize the body for making that decision. Right, right. So we're talking. So we're we're talking. So we're talking really again about, uh, you know, that moment-by-moment experience uh, where we, to the extent possible, we're freed from the influence of trauma that blocks us from being, you know, really in the moment, Um, but also not presupposing that there is a right and a wrong answer. So in a way, Mm -hmm. for instance, facing the angry mob, you know, it's not like you should trust that goodness will triumph and openness and connection will triumph. But, you know, that you take, you, you take appropriate action in the moment uh, while being able to be present and have all the resources you have. Well, the, the real, real question is the level of what is the appropriate action. You see, in, in your statement, the appropriate action implied a degree of being present, which means being aware and in control. Some people's bodies will react to another level, which will make them more... Uh, fight flight and they may not be able to make a conscious decision but in any case what happens we can't get angry at the body for what it's done we have to understand it and so what and in a sense respect it for what it's done and, and again trauma becomes the primary examples for people who have been molested or raped basically immobilized and then felt guilty about not fighting or running, as right. opposed to seeing the advantage, and this is functionally an evolutionary uh, adaptive success story, that by immobilizing, they were probably less likely to be killed or severely injured. Right, right. But so I think the, the key part I want to highlight here is you're ta- we're talking about respecting the body, and we're yeah. putting this in contrast to the experience of trauma, abuse, uh, which actually is an experience where, um, you know, the body is disrespected. And there right. is a learning about disrespecting or distrusting the body. And, and so we're making, in a way, that larger thing 
that larger point that uh, you know that it's about the ability to respect the body mm-hmm. and contrasting well, it with trauma. Well, even within trauma, I'm saying the 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 survivor has to respect their own body's reaction, right, and not be angry at their own body. That's all really saying. On yeah, that yeah, one. no, no. So the, the survivor has to respect that the body has its limitations due to the trauma, right. But but right. you know that in a way that the complicating factor is the uh, you know the the training in this yeah. respect means yeah. that you know it's the, the it might be more difficult to respect that it's what you can do at that moment. Yes. yes. Yeah. So you know, I'm I'm uh, in a way I'm seeing the word respect come up, and I'm just wondering if in a way it's like a highlight mm-hmm. of uh, what we've been talking about is yeah. coming to emphasize the the concept of respect and outlining a path for what it means and how to get to it. That mm-hmm. is very experiential, process oriented. You know. Uh, as opposed to having something that is more of an abstract quantity. I, I, as you said that, I'm now juxtaposing respect to another uh, important concept that a lot of people talk about, and that is shame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're, if one respects body reactions, then one doesn't have a concept of shame because of the body reactions. Yeah. So it enables, it creates a different personal narrative, a different way of using our higher brain structures to organize our own bodily reactions and feelings. So respect becomes an important uh, positive dimension that helps us understand how we react to various situations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so respect versus shame. Mm-hmm. And so shame as, a, as being lack of respect, but, you know, the humiliation, they're not okay, uh, you know, as a very, very powerful pose of human experience. And the shame is embedded in one's own body, and that leads to a lack of respect for that same body. So it's not merely that the person was disrespected, it's that they no longer respect themselves. Yeah. Respect their own body, I should say. Right, right. Or, or, or respect, you know, in a way, it's maybe, uh, if we put it in terms of experience, because we've been talking in terms of experience, mm-hmm. so that, in a way, respect is the experience of having a relationship with the body, where there is a sense of trust and the possibility of that dance. And shame is the experience of not being able uh, to trust the body of not being able to connect with it, of having, you know, of having that, uh, but, you know, something, I'm not quite able to articulate it, but I think what we're, we're talking about is something about a certain, exp- you know, it feels right to think of it in terms of talking about experience and relationship. Hmm. Um, I think it, it is... What we're dealing with is actually this kind of separation between an understanding of our bodily feelings with a language that we superimpose on those bodily feelings. Okay. So and, I want to just hold on. Let me yeah. just repeat that. But so talking about the difference between the experience of the bodily feelings and the language we superimpose over this experience, over these bodily right, feelings. Right. And that's uh, so. That's where this concept of respect comes in because the body is going to respond, it's going to react, it's going to have feelings. The question now is, what do we do with those feelings? And we understand it, that our body is doing what it can do, because that's what it does, you know, in a sense, an understanding of our, of our embedded physiological responses, which is a good start to understand what our body really does, mm-hmm. before we try to uh, contain or constrain that body, or get angry at the body for having had those responses. Okay, so um, a sense of, in a way, the 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 feelings, the experiences, uh, are uh, you know bodily responses. But so in a way, we're in process. We're you know life is interactive, and so every living organism that has ever existed has responses to outside stimuli. 
yeah. and so we got we have these responses, and it's a relationship we have with these responses. Yeah. Uh, well, and that comes back. We're going to go full circle because that relationship has to be a respectful relationship, mm-hmm. and, and, and that's really what what was meant by the term respect or bodily responses. And for me, it was also a uh, my interpretation of what self compassion was really about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, as you're saying this, uh, you know, I have a flashback to how we started the conversation. And we started talking about, uh, you know, in a way, life, career, external yeah. pressure, you know, uh, ex- explicit, the implicit, the reaction yeah. of the self. And so, you know, not necessarily trying to find a point-by-point, you know, symmetry to that. But what we're talking about now is to say, okay, so there is, uh, you know, there's we're an organism, and like all living organisms, we respond, we have responses. Um, and and so these responses are, you know, just uh, how we react to, in a way, the external. Uh, okay. And uh, do we have, um, in a way, through our experience of life, the habit of functioning in such a way that uh, we have respect for these responses and they provide mm-hmm. a useful guide for action? Or, in mm-hmm. a way, are we uh, at war against them, repressing them, uh, uh, not in touch with them, uh, disrespecting them, shamed of them? Well, I actually have another word. Are we hijacked by them? Okay. So where our body, uh, our bodily state drives our behavior because we can't, we haven't really attended to our body reactions, and so we now misunderstand what they are. So we, if we're in a mobilized state, obviously someone has done something to us, and we need to get back at that person. So, so the physiological mobilization hijacks our perspective of the world. Right, right. So, so in a way, uh, you know, the, the the whole purpose evolutionarily of these response, bodily responses, is to help us orient, mm. and uh, through. The, uh, the, you know, the, the, the trauma, basically, uh, or any other essentially form of disconnection, um, we hijack the response to give us the opposite of a helpful response because we're disoriented. We, we, we create an orientation to something that is not Reality. Well, we see it as threat. We see it as threat. We don't see it as an opportunity to co-regulate. We see it as threat, and which is a more primitive response, and but survival-oriented response. Okay, so so it's interesting because I often use the concept of sunflower mind, you know, and and as we're talking, it feels very similar that in a way, uh, you know, the that sense of you know. Uh, orienting the sunflower orients to the sun, mm-hmm. but imagine mm-hmm. some kind of a big magnet mm-hmm. uh, that would pull the sunflower away from the sun. And so, in the uh, orientation with the sun, there is a sense of a dance or a sense of cool, you know, the of finding the right place uh, yeah. of orienting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what you're talking about is, in a way, being hijacked. Yeah. Uh, instead yeah. of being able to be in the dance. Well, your metaphor is really good because the sunflower going to the sun is going to grow better. It's going to absorb the energy uh, from the sun. Uh, and so for its own adaptive success for growth and restoration and health, going to the sun is great. This is exactly what happens to humans when their physiological state hijacks their, their personal narrative. It disrupts their ability to co-regulate with another. And co-regulation is like this, metaphorically, like the sun to a human being. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it feels very right then to kind of get into. Uh, we were talking before about co-regulation, and mm-hmm. and come back to the word, and in a way, in light of what we've talked about. Uh, there is, in a way, something very powerful about simply repeating the word co-regulation and saying, yeah, it, 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 wouldn't it be interesting if we go through life thinking more in terms of co-regulation? 
thinking about what we do in these terms, instead of self-regulation, instead of adapting, instead of arguing, instead of it, but to think in terms of, in a way, we're 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 striving to find the right way to co-regulate. I think that's the. I think our quest for is really for safety and co-regulation is the archetypical concept of safety. So it enables our body to be calm. So remember, we're dealing with bodily responses in the language superimposed. Yeah, yeah. And, and our body needs to be co-regulated. We can't do it on our own. So, so, so I want to, again, highlight this because when you, I think it's very important when you said safety as co-regulation, mm-hmm. uh, that in a way from a model of threat, we often are tempted to think of safety ah. as absence of interaction. Oh. Okay? Like, I'm going to withdraw. I'm oh. going into my little curl into a little ball because that's where I have safety. And uh, very powerful when you say safety as co-regulation. Okay, so I, I do not see safety as a removal of threat. Yeah, of course. Okay, safety is something added. It's a special missing ingredient. And safety cues are, for humans, face-to-face interactions, vocalizations, intonation of voice, prosody, gesture, proximity, cuddling. Our body knows what safety cues are. And so the removal of threat doesn't make us feel safe. And having people walk around with guns isn't making the environment safe unless the people have cues of safety, meaning upper face is working, smiles, their voices have intonation, and they have uh, appropriate gestures. And we have to think about what we're doing to our society, which is totally focused on the removal of threat, as if that creates safety. Right, right. Uh, so, and I think that maybe the the temptation um, to go to a removal of threat comes from the place of, you know, in the large, in the whole spectrum of trauma, some degree of trauma. So, uh, you know, I've been hurt, and therefore I see safety as lack of interaction, as being, as withdrawing, as withholding. And the, the very, very powerful thing, as you're, you're emphasizing this point, is that in a way, educating uh, ourselves to the idea that as human beings, you know, our, our nature is to find safety as an interact, or, or as living creatures, as living beings, we can only yeah. find safety in interaction. Yes, yes. I think that summarizes it beautifully. This recording is part of the podcast at relationalimplicit.com. Part in the whole spectrum of trauma, some degree of trauma. So, uh, you know, I've been hurt, and therefore I see safety as lack of interaction, as being, as withdrawing, as withholding. And the, the very, very powerful thing, as you're, you're emphasizing this point, is that in a way, educating uh, ourselves to the idea that as human beings, you know, our, our nature is to find safety as an interaction, or, or as living creatures, as living beings, we can only yes. find safety in interaction. Yes, yes. I think that summarizes it beautifully. This is part of the Active Pause podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to activepause.com.